Welcome to episode 71 of FBI Retired Case Fall Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak to retired agent Greg Stakel, who served with the FBI for 31 years. Greg was assigned to the Detroit Division, where, for the most part, he worked out of the Ann Arbor Resident Agency. He was actually the senior resident agent in the RA for the last 10 years of his career prior to retirement. In this episode of FBI Retired Case File Review, Greg Stakel reviews a drug trafficking case involving a massive marijuana criminal enterprise. Initially, this case was a lead out of the Indianapolis Division, seeking assistance with their case involving a mother, Linda Leary, and her two sons, Paul and Richard Halbrun, who were charged with operating a marijuana smuggling and distribution enterprise. Greg Stakel was assigned to identify and locate a co-conspirator thought to be living in the Ann Arbor, Michigan area. This subject, only known as the Joker, had been charged along with the Halbrun family in a 136-page federal indictment. After a patient but persistent investigation, Greg Stakel was able to determine that the Joker's true identity was James Hill. Hill was sentenced to 20 years in jail for his role in the Ann Arbor operation of the marijuana criminal enterprise, which was proven to be the biggest marijuana ring ever prosecuted by the United States. Post-retirement, Greg Stakel is active in community service. He is also a regular contributor to TickleTheWire.com, a website featuring federal law enforcement news from around the country. An article written by Greg about the marijuana distribution criminal enterprise case is currently posted on the TickleTheWire.com site. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. I was introduced to Greg Stakel by several articles that he had written for The Grapevine, which is the official publication for the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI and for TickleTheWire.com. So indeed, he is a great storyteller, and, and I'm very happy that I was able to interview him for this show. Before we get to the interview, I just want to say to listeners living in the Philadelphia and South Jersey area, now that I'm back to my regular routine, that I am available to speak to your organization about the FBI and books, TV and movies, as I did for the New York chapter of the Mystery Writers of America earlier this year, or to speak about Scams and Schemers, How the FBI Investigates Fraud and Corruption. I'm actually scheduled to speak at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve under their summer education program to educators in the region, learning how to put together a finance curriculum for their students. And, of course, I'm available to speak to book clubs about my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, 
During the last six months, I've been turning down requests to speak because I was fully occupied with arranging my daughter's wedding, but that successful special event is over and my schedule is wide open. So if you're looking for a guest speaker for your event or your book club, if you're in the Philadelphia or South Jersey area, just shoot me an email and I'll be there. I also want to take the time to thank you for buying and reviewing my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, my time and expenses to produce and host FBI Retired Case File Review are supported by you. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping to defray the cost for me to continue producing ad-free content on a weekly basis. Plus, as you can tell from the great reviews Pay to Play has on Amazon.com, it's a great read. So keep the reviews coming as well as the tweets, posts, and emails. I love hearing from you. Now here's the show. I'm excited to introduce our guest, Greg Stasekull. Hey, Greg, how are you today? I'm doing fine. I am really fascinated by the case that you're going to talk to us about. You did a write-up for the website, Tickle the Wire, and I read it and I thought, oh, I need to do a podcast interview with this guy. It's a massive marijuana smuggling and distribution operation that's run by two brothers and their mother? Yeah, uh, that's basically it. Uh, it was uh, the Heilbrunn brothers uh, out of Indianapolis and their mother, Linda Leary. She she was twice married and divorced, and uh, she used her second husband's name, and, and it was uh, uh, Paul... Uh, who was the older brother, uh, or rather the younger brother, and Richard uh, Heilbrunn uh, out of Indianapolis. This case became almost like a, a puzzle for you, too, because there was an unidentified person that you were trying to bring into the case, and all you knew about him was he was called the Joker. Yeah, that's true. When when they did the indictment, and it, it was uh, sort of a long-term investigation, this was, and I think it continues to be, the largest prosecution uh, of a marijuana smuggling and uh, distribution ring in the history of the United States. And they put together this indictment, uh, culminated in uh, 1987, when the indictment came down, and it was a uh, continuing uh, criminal Enterprise Indictment, uh, what they call a CCE, the acronym. They alleged that this ring ran from 1975 to 1985, and in the original indictment they had it listed as uh, having dealt approximately 150,000 pounds of marijuana, and they thought that there had been a, a, a total revenue of about $50 million dollars and then later those numbers were, were scaled up after they got testimony from some of the people involved uh, to 250,000 pounds and 50 to 100 million dollars. But one of the dealers, and he was actually, um, he wasn't so much an employee of the Heilbrunns like a, like a sub dealer or something like that, but he was more of a peer 
in the sense that he was a big customer of the marijuana that he brought in, but he was uh, he was an independent distri- distributor who also had other sources of marijuana. But at the time of the indictment, uh, the only th- the only identifying name that they had for him was the Joker. So in the indictment, with all of the other people that were indicted, and I think there were 34 total people indicted, his was the only one that was listed as a as a John Doe, a.k.a. the Joker. And that's as much as they knew, and they knew he was primarily operating in Michigan. And beyond that, they didn't know much. And uh, so I became involved in the case when the indictment came down, and they were trying to identify the Joker, and they just... Uh, they had a little bit of information, but not much. So that's how I became involved in this uh, this marijuana case. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about the marijuana case so that we have a good understanding of the Joker's role in the operation? So who are these brothers and their mother? You know, wh- where are they operating and where are they getting their supplies from? Could you tell us about that? Sure. Well, they were um, they were a prominent uh, family. I mean, it was a mother and her two sons, but they were a prominent family in Indianapolis in the sense that she was very active in the community. She was she was uh, head of the Indiana League of Women Voters. She was the president of her local chapter of uh, Jewish American Women. Uh, the Heilbrunn brothers, Paul who was the uh, younger but actually the uh, uh, the more prominent member of this marijuana distribution ring was a high school dropout. But he was known about town as this bon vivant that wore uh, tailored suits, uh, frequented the finest restaurants, drove a uh, late model BMW, and... Uh, uh, and actually had uh, instances where he re- would rent a jet and fly his friends to stuff like the uh, uh, the Super Bowl or the uh, uh, the NCAA basketball finals and things like that. So uh, he also, at least people believed him to be, a successful commodities trader and wrote a column for the Indianapolis paper, I think it's the Indianapolis Star, wrote a column about uh, commodities trading and, uh, you know, tips and things like that. And then the other brother, um, Richard Heilbrunn, who was older, uh, but he was, uh, like, totally different. He uh, he was more, they described him as a big teddy bear, and uh, he lived on a farm, uh, he usually wore jeans and a flannel shirt, and he became sort of the COO. He was the one that uh, oversaw operations and and uh, and handled that aspect of the uh, of the marijuana smuggling and distribution ring. But what they were doing is they uh, they either owned or rented uh, barns out in the country and stuff because you know the, the the amount of marijuana they were dealing with was huge. Like I say in the in the indictment, they. They ultimately estimated that it was 250,000 pounds during the period that they operated. So they had to have these facilities to store the marijuana, and then it was distributed. And when they started out, it was a, a relatively small distribution thing that, that became successful and grew, primarily because Paul was such a, uh, an, a uh, an adept businessman. He uh, 
did a really good job. But they they started out with their high school friends and stuff doing the distribution. The, the high school friends had gone to different colleges. They were distributing marijuana on college campuses where these guys had gone to school, and uh, uh, and that's the way it began. And it just kept getting bigger. And they would smuggle the marijuana in from various sources into the United States, from you know Colombia, Jamaica, places like that, um, and bring it cross country uh, in truckloads, and then store it in these barns, and then it would be distributed out. So that was sort of the uh, how it worked, and it just you know it it just got bigger from there. So they weren't growing it in Indianapolis. You know, I um, I don't think uh, if it, if there was any growing done locally, uh, it was it was on a very small scale. Most of their stuff was coming in from outside the United States. Now you mentioned that they initially started selling it on college campuses. How, how old were the brothers? Well, at that time, uh, you know, they were uh, college age, young, uh, early, early twenties, and uh, and like I say, it started out kind of small. They had a front business at that time. They ultimately had numbers of front businesses, but the one front business they started out with, I think, was called Heilbrunn and Friends, and it was supposed to be a, like an organic foods business, which obviously is a good front for marijuana. It's pretty organic. <laughs> Um, yeah. but, uh, and, uh, so that was their front business. And like I said, they had friends that they knew from high school and stuff that had gone to different colleges and stuff and were living elsewhere in the United States. And they became sub dealers for the Halbruns and, and would deal with marijuana. <clears throat> Excuse me. And how involved was the mother? Linda Larry? Yeah, she, uh, Linda Leary, like I said, who was a prominent member of the community, was pretty much aware of the business, I think, from the outset. And, uh, she, she apparently accepted it. Uh, she was not directly involved in the marijuana distribution, uh, or storage part of the business. She was, uh, later involved in being part of these front groups that they used to launder the money, uh, some businesses and uh, entities that they used to launder money and became involved in that, that part of the business. When does this operation and how does this operation become known to law enforcement? Well, you know, like everything, it was kind of fortuitous. What happened was there was a, uh, a guy that had been involved in the business that they actually, uh, uh, he was actually uh, terminated from from the uh, Heilbrunn business because uh, he was uh, using the product and uh, became unreliable. And he was also involved in uh, cocaine. Now, the Heilbrunns never, to, at least to the best of my knowledge, uh, never became involved in they may have used, but they weren't heavy users. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, the, the only product that they uh, distributed was, was marijuana. Now, this other guy got involved in cocaine and some other things. But at any rate, he was terminated and then became a subject of a uh, drug enforcement administration case. The DEA was arrested and uh, wanted to cooperate. So he... Uh, he started giving them information, and I believe that was in 19, 
I want to say about 1985. It took a couple years and a lot of good investigation by the DEA and the FBI, and, uh, and there were some state people involved in, in Indiana that uh, they were able to put together uh, a solid case and ultimately return an indictment uh, of the Heilbrunn organization. But it began with this uh, this one terminated dealer who uh, wanted to cooperate in order to lessen his criminal liability. So uh, I guess what it shows is there's not much honor amongst thieves nor among uh, drug dealers. So. Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, as you find out quickly when you work in enforcement that uh, your, your cases oftentimes turn on the on either a cooperating witness or a, or a, a confidential source that's willing to give you information that you can work with and and move on from there. So they are indicted, and is there a trial? Well, before <laughs> before there's uh, uh, any. Any prosecution, in fact, before actually before the indictment is returned, the Heilbruns, Paul and Richard, and the mother, Linda Leary, leave the country abruptly uh, and move entirely to Austria. Now, by that time, their uh, marijuana op- business operation has uh, pretty much ended. But they knew the indictment was coming down. It was pretty obvious. I mean, as people uh, were called in front of the grand jury and subpoenas are issued and all of those kinds of things. So they knew it was coming. And so they left and went to Austria. Why Austria? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I think partially because they hoped that they would be able to establish themselves in Austria and then insulate themselves from being extradited from Austria. It's kind of ironic when you stop and think that Austria was part of the the German Third Reich and was very much involved in, you know, the things that happened during World War II to Jews. And yet, uh, here you've got some American Jews moving to Austria to to avoid uh, extradition to the United States. So uh, They didn't have any relatives there? They didn't have any ancestral ties uh, to the country? To the best of my knowledge, they had no relatives there. They did know some people, and uh, I know Linda Leary had traveled to Austria in the past, um, and they all liked Austria. They felt, uh, I guess, somewhat comfortable there. There was a little bit of a falling out in the family when they did go to Austria, because Paul ended up living in one place in Austria, and uh, and Richard and Linda Leary, Richard Heilbrunn and Linda Leary, moved uh, to another part, and I, I, I believe... If, uh, if my memory serves me, that uh, Linda Leary and uh, Richard were living near Salzburg, and then uh, Paul was living elsewhere. But uh, ultimately, the United States began efforts to extradite them, and they were arrested by the Austrian authorities, placed in jail, and, and had a, a, a relatively long battle, uh, about two years, fighting extradition on this indictment. In the meantime, back in the States, uh, a lot of the people that had been indicted were were arrested and prosecuted. A lot of them then uh, testified against the Halbruns and and just strengthened the case. And that was the reason why ultimately the amounts of of marijuana and the money taken in uh, were changed upward, modified upward. But during the all of that, during the course of the uh, investigation prosecution, no one 
was able to identify the joke, this individual that was up in Michigan who, like I said, was a, uh, was receiving large amounts of marijuana from the Heilbrunn Ring and distributing in, in Michigan. But, uh, nobody was, uh, giving him up at that point. And it became clear that it might be only Paul Heilbrunn who actually Before we move into that area, I have two questions. I know one of the goals of a case like this is forfeiture. Um, where is all of this money? So they took in close to 50 to $100 million in sales. Do the case agents have any idea where this money is? Well, it was interesting. Paul, as I mentioned, was was a, uh, a very adept businessman. And what he did early on was set up offshore corporations. He had attorneys set up offshore uh, businesses and a lot of the money was sent to uh, places in uh, in the Bahamas, uh, in Jamaica, places like that where these businesses, which were nothing more than fronts. And again, Linda Leary became involved in that aspect of it in that she was she was listed as being the uh, the chairman or CEO of these businesses that really didn't weren't businesses other than in name only. And then arrangements were made to bring the money back in. And one of the ways it was brought back in was to loan it to businesses, some of them in Indiana, in fact, probably the majority of them in Indiana, they would they would uh, loan money. Uh, for example, startups like restaurants and, and other small businesses like that. And uh, by loaning the money to these other businesses, they in effect laundered it. And then when the payments were coming back in on the loans, then they now had clean money. So that's how it was handled, and then it, to the extent that it was possible to identify assets like real estate and actual buildings and things like that, those were forfeited, and of course they took uh, large amounts of money with them when they went to Austria and purchased homes and things there. So uh, to the extent that the government was able to trace those assets, they were they were forfeited. And my next question is really about you, because now we're getting ready to get into the part where you know, you're looking for the Joker, trying to identify who this person is. So why don't you take the time now to tell us a little bit about you, um, if you could tell us when you joined the FBI and why you joined the FBI. Well, I entered on duty with the FBI on March 10th of 1975. Uh, that's when I uh, was sworn in and then did my training at Quantico. But leading up to that, I I had wanted to be in the FBI since I was a kid, probably before I was in high school. I had, I had read some books uh, about the FBI. I think one of them was uh, one of those landmark books about, you know, that was about the FBI, and I was intrigued with it. And then I saw things like the FBI story with Jimmy Stewart. There was the old Untouchables show, which was technically about Elliot Ness, who was a uh, a Treasury agent. But uh, if you ever watched the show, it it, uh, it was made to appear. And in fact, a lot of the cases that they showed were FBI cases on on the Untouchables. Then when it became a TV show. So anyway, I I ended up wanting to be in the FBI, and I continued with that even into college. I went to the University of Nebraska undergrad, and then I went to law school. And when I got done with law school, I applied and ultimately got in. My first office 
ultimately, my last office of assignment was Detroit. So you spent most of your time in in, uh, the Michigan area. Yeah, I did. Other than some uh, temporary duty assignments, I spent my entire career career in Michigan. Uh, I was I was in in Detroit for the first part of my career, and then I was transferred out to the resident agency, which is uh, what we call satellite offices. And the, the one I went to was Ann Arbor. And the last about the last twelve years of my time in Ann Arbor, which covered five counties, I was uh, what they call the senior resident agent. I was in charge of the Ann Arbor office, so that's how I ended up my career. So I used to joke I was a thirty-plus year first office agent. So, <laughs> how many people are in the Ann Arbor resident agency? Well, at the time when I was the senior resident agent, we had eight agents. Three, like I said, we covered five counties out of there, so we actually had a, uh, a pretty good size area and had over a million people in our territory. There were five criminal agents, and as a senior resident agent, I carried a full caseload just like everybody else. I was just sort of like a first among equals. And then we had three agents that were working foreign counterintelligence because the University of Michigan has a, a lot of uh, foreign students big number of them from China, and also we get some from Russia and some other countries of interest. So that's primarily what the, the foreign counterintelligence agents did, and then the rest of us were working criminal work. All right, so when they're looking for this joker, trying to identify who he is, why are they coming to Ann Arbor? What do they know about him that makes them believe that he is operating in your territory? The one thing we did know about the Joker, and as it turned out, and during the course of, like I said, as they uh, as they bring back this indictment, identify some of the people. One of the people that they uh, that they were able to identify was a, gay, a guy by the name of uh, of Shed S H E D D, and uh, Shed uh, was uh, he acted uh, apparently as as an employee of the Joker, and he operated in. Washtenaw County, in the sense when I say operated, he had a he had a farm in, in the, with a large barn, and he was acting as a storage person and and apparently doing other things, transporting marijuana and stuff. Uh, and you know they believed that was on behalf of the Joker. So we assumed then that um, the Joker was in this area. Chad was unwilling to give him up, we suspect, because the Joker was willing to pay him not to give him up. And Shed was was one of the people that was indicted and ultimately convicted during the uh, early part of the uh, prosecution. But he never identified the Joker. We knew he was up here. We had a good idea of the amount of marijuana that came up here based on other subordinates of the Heilbruns that were giving up that information. So we knew he was a a substantial dealer. Later we learned he also had some other independent sources. So he was probably, he wasn't, as big as the Halbruns, but he was an extremely large dealer. Uh, we're talking uh, probably around uh, 100,000 pounds of marijuana that we were able to, to uh, identify that, that he had distributed during his time as a marijuana. Well, he both smuggled and distributed. So so how do you start? I mean, what is this a lead that's being sent out from Indiana? Yeah, actually, one of the case agents came up to Ann Arbor, and uh, I was primarily working drugs at the time. We got 
as the FBI did not get drug jurisdiction until 1982. Then we had what they call collateral jurisdiction with the Drug Enforcement Administration for federal federal drug cases. So I was working a lot of drug cases at the time, and the agent, one of the lead agents from Indianapolis, who was involved in the original investigation of the Halbrons came up and, you know, kind of laid it all out for me and said, you know, this guy's been up here. He's a pretty good-sized dealer, obviously, and he's been operating in your territory. And I, you know, I sort of took it as a personal challenge. Uh, you know, here I've got this relatively major dealer working in my territory and uh, pretty much with impunity, and now we can't even identify. And so I decided that that was uh, something that I should try to do. And I, I uh, did everything I could to, to identify him, and ultimately we were able to identify him. Tell us how you did that. Uh, the, the first thing was I did a lot of investigation of, uh, you know, I, I read through the indictment, tried to get a good timeline and everything like that, and uh, tried to identify uh, other people that that were involved in uh, in. The Joker's aspect of this thing. I mean, his, his part in this distribution stuff. Of course, we knew about, about Shed having been this, uh, a guy that was in the thing, but, you know, he isn't going to cooperate with us. So, uh, then I thought, well, I should branch out from there. And I came up, I came up with an individual who apparently was early on involved with the, uh, the Joker's operation, but, he became disenchanted with, I think, not only with the Joker's operation, but with just the whole idea of being involved in being in the, uh, the drugs and stuff. And uh, had, at least to the best I was able to determine, was totally not involved and not involved in any way in, in drug trafficking. And I approached him and explained who I was and stuff in it. I suspected this individual might know the, the Joker's identity or at least could give me information that might help me identify the Joker. So uh, I decided that, you know, I would try to gain this person's trust. So I approached them with the idea that, you know, hey, I'm working this case, trying to find out who these people are and stuff. And uh, we ended up, we meet for coffee periodically over a period of probably uh, a couple months. We talk about a lot of things, and oftentimes we would meet and have coffee and never even discuss drugs or the drug business. We'd talk about politics or sports or something, but we didn't talk about drugs. But ultimately, I gained this individual's trust, and uh, I finally said, you know, I'm trying to figure out who this guy, the Joker, is, and uh, I spent a lot of time on it and stuff, and I'm and I'm just wondering if there's anything that you could tell me. And I, I told him up front, and I, there was never any mention of, you know, hey, I'll pay you for this information. It was always understood this individual was ever going to give me any information. It was because it, it, he felt it was the right thing to do and and uh, not not for money. And this individual uh, said, yeah, I, I think I can help you on that. And uh, he proceeds to give me the joker's name, James Frederick Hill. He said, uh, that's the joker. And I'm going, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm a little dumbfounded at first because, I, you know, I had hoped that he would help me, but I didn't realize he would help me that much, and he did. So I pretty much took it from there and did a lot of checking, found out where, the, uh, where this uh, James Hill was living, 
Uh, I found out he had a business. He actually had owned several homes and had a farm just outside of Ann Arbor, uh, which I thought was kind of intriguing because the farm had a barn. But also, he had a business in town. It was the Love and Spoonful Ice Cream Parlor, which was actually being run by by his wife. So I did that investigation, but I also found out in doing a criminal check that he had been arrested on a traffic violation, and the traffic violation was no big deal, but they had an arrest photo, and that was helpful. Um, So I got the arrest photo, I sent it to our agents in uh, Indianapolis that were working the case. They were able to show the photo to some of the other people in the Heilbrunn organization that were cooperating. They looked at the photo and several of them said, oh, yeah, that's definitely the Joker. All right. So these people had interacted with him, but they just didn't know yeah, his name or where he was. Yeah. He um, he was careful not to have too much interaction with anybody. Uh, as And the Heilbrunns had... Uh, they had set up their organization in what they what is referred to as a sort of a stovepiping kind of thing. In other words, information flowed up and down, but not sideways too often. So you know, people only knew what they needed to know, and uh, that that made the case a lot more hard, uh, a lot harder to investigate. But ultimately, uh, you know, it, it it worked out for us. But uh, for that reason. The Joker only had limited intercourse with the people in uh, in Indiana, and only a few people knew. Now, uh, Paul Halbrun knew who the Joker was, but he was right. probably the only one in the in the Indiana organization that did. Now, there were two other females who really had sort of a a minor part in the Joker's operation, but those two. And they did, they did have interaction with the Indiana, uh, group more often. And they were just known as Tipper and Topper. They were the only two other unknown people in that original indictment. And they were both females and, uh, uh, but for whatever reason, they used the uh, nicknames Tipper and Topper. And, uh, we were able to, uh, after we identified uh, the Joker, we were able to identify them as well. And let me ask you about this James Hill, who, who you now know is the Joker. Is he living above his means? Is, does he look like somebody? I and mean, he's got this ice cream business and a farm, but is he spending money as if he had a one hundred million dollar uh, marijuana operation? Well, yes and no. He wasn't. He wasn't ostentatious by any means. And uh, you know, I he did have a farm. He did have two homes in Ann Arbor, one of which I believe his wife's sister was living in, and then there was another home. Both in uh, affluent neighborhoods. They were really, they were very nice homes, and the barn, I mean, the the, uh, farm outside of Ann Arbor was, you know, was a nice property and worth a lot of money. Now, uh, if you if you looked at it as an investigator, kind of going, well, you know, what's this guy's source of income? It would be really difficult to figure out, and uh, especially to be able to afford, you know, two homes and stuff. I guess you could to have the amount of money that you needed to have the homes and the farm, and and the farm uh, was a cash well, it wasn't a cash purchase, but he owned it free and clear. So yeah, I would think that even if you owned a very prosperous ice cream place, you know, store. 
in Michigan, it has a short season. You know, you know, nobody really wants ice cream in a, you know, a, a, an Ann Arbor winter. No, it's, a, you know, it's a boutique kind of business, and and it, it, it there's no way that 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 business could have. Uh, I mean, you would have had to have money to go in, and plus the business was pretty much contemporaneous with the purchase of the farm and the and the houses. In other words, you you would have, uh, even if you were making good money with this ice cream business, you would have had to have been making it for a while. And and that isn't the, really the way it went down. I mean, the houses were purchased, the uh, the farm was purchased, all within a few years of each other. And mm. and so, and again, the marijuana. I mean, the uh, ice cream business was being run, and uh, uh, that was pretty much a source of income for his wife. Might have been a good way to launder the money. I don't know. Claim that the money was going through the ice cream business, but uh, you'd be selling a lot of ice cream cones. Of course, it also makes you wonder what was in the ice cream, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which you know good, might, might explain having ice a, cream. a particularly good business. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, so you now have this person who's able to help you identify the true name of the of the Joker. What else do you need before you can get a, an arrest warrant to get a search warrant? Well, again, um, we. Uh, once I sent, once I got the arrest photo and had a photograph, and then had the people in uh, Indiana, the cooperating people down there, identify the photo positively, identify the photo as being the Joker, then we knew that James Frederick Hill was in fact the Joker. At that point, an arrest warrant was issued in uh, in Indiana. And the indictment was amended to show the name of James Hill as being, a.k.a. the Joker. So, Oh, that's right, because you've already got an indictment. He was indicted uh, as, as John Doe, a.k.a. the Joker. So, okay. so the arrest warrant can be issued. You modify the indictment and actually name him in the indictment. And uh, so he was arrested pursuant to that arrest warrant, which, of course, was pursuant to the indictment. So we set up an arrest team outside the farm and, and arrested him. Ultimately, we, we also... Search warrants were executed, but uh, when we arrested James, I, I took him into custody, and uh, well, I and the arrestee took him into custody and uh, took him back to the office. And he, uh, I, you know, I explained to him what was going on, and and you know, you, you you have a feeling when you've got the right guy because I mean, he isn't protesting or anything. He isn't saying what's this all about or anything. It was as though he expected to be arrested at some point, and uh, I explained to him how the thing was going to work. That, going to take him to Detroit and arraign him on the, uh, on the warrant, and he was going to be removed and uh, transported to Indiana to face charges. So, and that's how it went down. And ultimately, uh, you know, he cooperated as well. So, and, uh, Did you find any marijuana in that barn? You know, he had none on his farm, which doesn't surprise me because that's that's the kind of way he operated. So uh, we did come up with some business records and stuff in in the course of the, uh, the searches, but uh, but no marijuana on his farm, no. And you know, his business had. Uh, I mean, he had made a tremendous amount of money when he was operating, but. Uh, by the time we arrested him, his business had pretty much shut down too. I mean, with with the arrest of, of uh, Shed, who was one of the storage people and stuff, I think they all and uh, you know one of his primary sources was the Heilbrunn operation in Indiana, so that that no longer was a source. Uh, we did learn that that uh, 
that Hill, the Joker, had also smuggled marijuana in on his own at at one time, and so he obviously had some other sources of marijuana. But you know, all the businesses had, by the time we actually made the arrest of Hill, had pretty much shut down. Now, what about Tipper and Topper? Well, we we identified them, and uh, and in fact, James Hill identified them. So. Oh. And uh, my source had also told me who they they were, but you know uh, I couldn't use that information without revealing the source, so I had to get it independently. And and Hill did uh, did identify who they were. And, uh, and who are they? Uh, they were two sisters. Their uh, last name was Hanlon, H-A-N-L-O-N. And uh, I'm trying to remember one. I believe was Patricia. Hanlon and uh, Jennifer. It was Jennifer and Patricia Hanlon. Their role also was as well, they, they were involved they in the distribution. Yeah, they, they actually had a relatively minor role. They did a lot of stuff with the Indiana operation. I think primarily paying for marijuana, uh, transporting money to Indiana to pay for the marijuana. I, I think that was primarily what they did. And again, part of uh, James Hill's modus operandi, his M.O., was to avoid interacting uh, with, uh, he tried to keep his interaction with subordinate employees and stuff to a minimum. You know, that was almost uh, successful to keep him from being identified. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't, but it almost was. So, And that's what the role of, of the Hanlon sisters was, with, uh, was to do a lot of this stuff that he would have to do himself otherwise. And they were right there with him in, in Ann Arbor? Yeah. They uh, they actually <laughs> they actually were running a daycare center in, in, just outside of Ann Arbor. Right. So how does it all end? I mean... Well, then there, I... there was the prosecution of these later people and stuff. You know, the Heilbrunns were extradited from Austria in 1989, after after I arrested James Hill, they were it was late 18, uh, 1989 that they were uh, extradited. In October of 90, Hill pleaded guilty and and agreed to testify against the Halbrons. And uh, he admitted in his uh, plea, his proffer was that he had received shipments from the Halbrons. He pay, paid them approximately 20 million dollars. And that he had received more than a hundred thousand pounds of marijuana during the course of their their operation together. And Hill was ultimately sentenced to twenty years. Uh, oh wow! On his plea, even though he had agreed to cooperate. In fact, the judge said he was he pled to a, a CCE, a continuing criminal enterprise. And the judge said that he would have received more time had he not cooperated. And then in January of 1991, Linda Leary pleaded guilty. <laughs> she had to testify against her sons. Oh, really? Mama. And she was sentenced to uh, nine years. And she, was, at the time, she was in her early 70s. I don't think she's any longer with us. And then there was, uh, and ultimately, the, uh, the Halbrons didn't go to trial either. They both pleaded guilty. Richard, the older brother, the, the the teddy bear, the guy that lived on the farm, he got 13 years. And Paul, who was, again, sort of the CCE of the whole thing, he received 28 years. So ended the uh, Heilbrunn Empire. 
Wow. That's, uh, that's fascinating because, you, you know, a lot of times when you think about, you know, major drug investigations, it's cocaine or heroin or, or something like that. But, well, yeah, uh, and, you know, in looking back on it, it's, it's kind of funny because you look at it from, from our perspective now with a lot of states legalizing marijuana and stuff. And you think of it, well, you know, it was just marijuana. But you, then you stop and think these huge amounts of marijuana. I mean, with Hill actually admitting to having received 100,000 pounds of marijuana, that's uh, 50,000 50, tons, and uh, or 50 tons, rather. You know, those are huge amounts of marijuana. But the other thing you look at is these people weren't interested in legalizing marijuana. They, they weren't out there, you know... Uh, uh, lobbying to to legalize marijuana, it was to their benefit that, that marijuana was illegal because now you have a, you had a restricted market. It's like looking at prohibition now. You know, nobody says you know we should uh, make alcohol illegal, uh, but uh, the bootleggers wanted alcohol to be illegal because you could make huge amounts of money. Uh, you didn't have a lot of competition. It was illegal. And all the uh, revenue, all the profits, are tax-free. That's exactly what these guys had. They had this restricted market, very little competition, and all their profits were tax-free. After this case ended, did you have other major drug cases that you uh, continued to work on? Yeah, I actually, sort of contemporaneous with this one, I had a, uh, a, a pretty good size cocaine case that that I worked in and that actually involved a Title III, a wiretap, and he actually placed a bug too in the in the dealer's home. Um, and then after that, I had sort of a unique drug case in the sense that it involved uh, anabolic steroids. And that case started out as sort of a small group two kind of undercover operation that grew into uh, a group one major international steroid case, which um, had two two undercover agents, and we ended up prosecuting successfully prosecuting about seventy dealers involved the, the Mounties in Canada. We had uh, stuff uh, the steroids coming in from uh, Mexico and Canada it was, uh, all, and our subjects were all over the United States. So it ended up being a huge case. So that was probably one of the more unique drug cases that uh, that we worked. All right, so you were saying that you worked nearly 32 years with the FBI. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I loved thought, every thought, minute of it. Ah. <laughs> well, almost every minute. But, yeah, almost. Uh, so once you retired, did you have one of those great post-retirement jobs? Uh, what did you do? Well, I still do a little bit of consulting. I do speaking. I've written some. I, I wrote about this case that we just talked about, and I've written about a few other cases that I was involved in, but primarily I do a lot of community service stuff. I, uh, I'm involved with the local YMCA and I'm heavily involved with the local Rotary Club. No, I never really had, <laughs> beyond the Bureau, I never had a full-time job. I used to tell people, you know, I know some some people leave the Bureau and some of them actually leave it before they have to and, and take on other jobs and things, but for me, I always felt like, you know, I always wanted to be an FBI agent, so I'm going to stay as long as I possibly can. And so that was the way I did it. Well, I'd like to give my guest an opportunity to sum up their careers and, and, and have the last word. So what would you like to say? 
like I said, I wanted to be in the FBI since I was a kid and uh, got in. For me, it was a fantastic career. It was a rewarding career. And, you know, I really did enjoy the job. Uh, uh, it was everything that I had hoped it would be. And uh, in some respects, even better. So it was uh, it was great, and I stayed as long as I possibly could. In fact, <laughs> I got a six-month extension, and then they finally showed me the door, but I would have stayed longer if I could have. And that's the end of the interview. As always, at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Greg Stakel. You'll find links to newspaper articles about this massive marijuana distribution criminal enterprise case. And you'll find a direct link to thetickletherwire.com, where Greg has posted articles about other cases he worked during his time in the FBI. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. I have all the social media share buttons at the bottom of the show notes for this episode. And of course, if you're listening from your phone, you can share it directly from your device. And don't forget to review FBI Retired Case File Review on iTunes or Stitzer or any of the other podcatchers you're using. This week, I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you. So for this episode, I will just have to recommend Pay to Play, my FBI crime thriller about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. Pay to Play is available at Amazon.com as an ebook or trade paperback. I also want to invite you to join my FBI Retired Case File Review Reader Team. When you sign up, I'll send you the FBI Reading Resource, which is a list of all of the FBI books crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs written by the FBI agents who have been interviewed on this podcast. Books about the FBI written by FBI agents. How cool. You can sign up for the FBI Retired Case File Review Reader Team on my website, jerrywilliams.com. Just sign up when you see the pop-up. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.